Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Episode 65 of Suncast. Base numbers grow like crazy. RFPs, call for tenders, behind the meter approaches, commercial PPAs. There's all types of levers of growth all across the planet that, that we're seeing. That for me, that's exciting. The growth train is running yeah. and you can't really stop it. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and action shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Well, welcome back to another episode of Suncast Solar Warriors. I'm your host, Nico Johnson, and I am glad to have you back here with us again. I hope you learned a lot during this week's ultra-nerdy Tactical Tuesday with Hong Bin Fang of Longi Solar. Well, Solar Warriors, what a wild week we have going on with the trade case announcement and the Trump administration imposing the long-anticipated and much-feared tariff on imported sales. We'll see what this is going to do for our industry here, at least for the domestic U.S. market. I don't think it's going to have any ramifications on international trade, and certainly we see cell production, module production ramping up to some 50 gigawatts. In the meantime... We have a lot of great content coming at you. Today on Suncast, we have the distinct pleasure of getting into the head, into the operations of a leader across the northern border with us up in Canada, a Quebecois, Mr. Etienne Lecomte. He's a leader of a company called Power Hub. Some of you may be customers, others may be completely unfamiliar at all. We do look at the hardest and easiest things about starting your own venture. In fact, Etienne even gets into how they raised capital. I think that you're going to love, as much as I did, the level of energy and impact that Etienne brings to the world, and I sure hope that you stick around till the end. As always, if there's a topic or expert that you think should be on Suncast, shoot me an email, a LinkedIn message, or even just pop over to the website and leave me a quick voicemail right from your smartphone. That website, again, is www.mysuncast.com. Hey, I'd like to give a friendly little shout-out here to my friends over at ATA. They are an engineering firm operating globally, but they have a crack team down in Mexico that is doing amazing owner engineering and third-party engineering for projects. They also bring the fury when it comes to content. If you could see their webinar calendar, it is fantastic. Well, my friend Belen Gallego and her team with Patty Tato and others have announced their 2018 webinar series. And I'm excited and will be on their February 1st webinar all about bulk storage technologies. You can see a link to that webinar in the show notes for today's episode over on mysuncast.com. This episode is made possible in partnership with Alliant Energy. 
the innovative new fully ballasted solar tracker that is at home in the harshest environments, helping developers reduce project risk, increase yield, and keep their solar assets magically clean and productive. To learn more about their ballasted tracker and robotic cleaning solutions, please visit www.alionenergy.com. That's A-L-I-O-N. And let them know you heard about it here on Suncast. Thanks again for setting aside this time in your day to be here with us on Suncast. Without further ado, please enjoy this week's episode with Etienne Lecomte. Today on Suncast, I have the genuine pleasure of inviting a new friend on the show, a Canadian and a true entrepreneur and business leader. Etienne Lecomte is a recognized leader in renewable energy, software development, and regulatory compliance. He founded PowerHub to make managing portfolios of assets easy. PowerHub is redefining asset intelligence management for the renewable energy industry. And Etienne has worked on over eight gigawatts of wind and solar projects globally. Etienne, welcome to Suncast, my friend. Well, thanks a lot, Nico. Thanks for having me, man. Absolutely. It was a pleasure, uh, genuinely a pleasure to meet you and James down in Chile. And I knew within two minutes that not only did we have similar humor, but I had to get you on the show. <laughs> thanks, Matt. Well, I am really intrigued. Obviously, we have done an interview here on asset management, which I didn't know much about asset management before. I had Ed May on the show, and we had some fun conversations down in Chile because we were at an asset management conference, which was a new thing for me as well. And I think we'll explore a bit about asset management, but I'm really, really curious because you didn't sort of start a business in solar out the gate. In fact, you've been in a lot of different businesses, <laughs> including, including high-end clothing, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. You're, you're correct. You're correct. <laughs> Could you give me a better understanding of your first exposure or foray, as it were, to solar power and when or how you decided that this is where you were going to focus your next venture? That brings me back, I guess, to university. I did kind of part of my bachelor focus on sustainability, and I always thought that was kind of important and kind of business is a change agent in society. I fundamentally believe that. My first job was working for Deloitte as a strategy consultant, and I was actually working with Hydro-Quebec and running basically a call for tenders for wind in early 2000s. Wow. So I did that for a few years. And while running an RFP process is not the sexiest job on the planet, it was actually very educational to learn all about wind, learn about contract negotiations. And that for me was kind of an eye-opener. I said, like, okay, wait, this whole renewables thing is really taking off. I did that for a few years, then then ran around in different uh, venues. Then I hadn't really touched solar until uh, probably 2011, when a good buddy of mine who's a solar developer, friend from business school, kind of reached out and said, hey, you worked on similar aspects of the feed and tariff program that they had in Ontario at that point in Quebec 10 years ago, or five years, well, it was earlier than that, Matt, <laughs> six years ago or so. Do you have an interest in kind of looking at opportunities in Ontario around solar and wind and regulatory compliance and so on. I'm like, yeah, why not? It wasn't four months of due diligence on the opportunity and said, we just said, okay, well, let's just try. It's not a capital intensive business. It's consulting, right? It's advisory work. And this is around the regulatory compliance for local content, right? Exactly. So that was just kind of how it started. 
And uh, we kind of grew the business very quickly into kind of a powerhouse on that niche in, in Ontario. So talk probably- about a niche. Like that's an inch. <laughs> so let me get this right. You started a business. It was Local Content Advisory Board. Is that right? Uh, local Content Assurance Bureau. Assurance it has to sound Bureau. Very, sorry. It has I, to I, sound I, very official. But I remember kind of drafting the name. LCAB. So, so that's how you got the idea for LCAB. That's really interesting. So a friend called you and said, hey, we've got this thing. They're going to have local content requirements. Banks are asking questions. And when banks ask questions, there's usually an opportunity. He was trying to raise project finance. It just wasn't working because there's actually it was a key risk that they needed to manage was domestic content. And if they couldn't do it, they wouldn't get financing. Mm. So we had someone who was early in the market who wasn't balance sheet financing his projects who needed help. So we said, hey, maybe there's an opportunity. If, if it works for you, maybe it works for other people. And we started says, hey, we're going to develop a certification program. We're going to certify manufacturers that they produce stuff in Ontario. And that was an utter failure. <laughs> that did not work at all. Certifying manufacturers did not work. We had built this great core certification. We have certificates. I, I'm not kidding. And it's core, which was contributor to Ontario Renewable Energy. So it all, like we, we really worked on this. Some manufacturers jumped on board and finally it didn't really take off that way. But the developer community really rallied behind the project said, hey, we need you guys to kind of audit for us these manufacturers. So that's kind of how we build that business over time. This is similar then in scope to what Andy Klump did in China, right? With clean energy advisors, auditing and basically stepping in on behalf of developers to ensure that the manufacturer's quality is right, that where they say they're sourcing from, they're actually sourcing from, et cetera. Yeah. I have deep knowledge now of kind of the whole value chain on inverters, panels, racking, it's actually really, really interesting to be in a panel factory, especially a really well-automated line. I find it's beautiful. You said when banks start asking questions, there's usually an opportunity. Yeah. Give me another example of where that's true and where you've seen a business opportunity because simply banks start asking questions. Well, right now there's an opportunity. If you look for, for me on the banking side, one of the John Privitali at Wells Fargo is kind of on, probably on the forefront of asking questions. <laughs> and he started years ago looking for backup service providers or backup systems, and those types of approaches to basically diminish risk. And fortunately for them, because of the whole Sun Edison portfolios, they were able to kind of turn around and actually manage that transition fairly smoothly. So for me, I think what we see today is a lot of banks asking those same questions, like, wait a second, how can I have backup service providers or backup systems in place? So if my primary service provider, primary systems go down, I'm covered. That's something that we're working with as well. Say, hey, we'll put in a system that kind of automates data gathering, data processing, and so on. So if you need to kind of move away from that, from primary service provider, primary service provider goes bankrupt, leaves the industry, is acquired. Well, it's the solar coaster, right? You never know what's going to happen. Absolutely. So that's something that that, that we're working on today. Speaking of working on today, this is what your third venture, fourth venture in terms of like startups that you either run or start? Yeah, I think it's three, or it could be four if you count that I was kind of a student painter in university, but I don't think that counts. <laughs> we'll, we'll throw that in there for an entrepreneur perspective. <laughs> well, give me a, if you would, maybe a 30-second pitch on what PowerHub is. So PowerHub started from us asking stupid questions to our clients about how they were managing these great assets that they've built and we helped manage the risk on for, for years while they were constructing them. Say, so, hey, these assets are finally operational. What now? What do you mean, what now? It's like, how are they run? How are you managing that portfolio of assets? Well, Jim is running this or uh, Cynthia is running that. It's like, what do you mean? 
while Jim has his Excel spreadsheet and he looks over project one. Cynthia has this Outlook calendar and she runs project B. It's like, how do you know what both projects are doing? Well, we sit down together in a room, they talk. And I'm like, okay, I'm a systems and process guy. So I just asked stupid questions like, how about we build the system to kind of help information transparency, information centralization, reporting, all that good stuff. You're still at LCAB. You're talking to your clients. Is it born out of curiosity or is it also born out of a need to find a new avenue because the work for LCAB is winding down? Uh, both. Like when we were at LCAB, we knew we had kind of a window to work in. Yeah, right. And we knew that from the start. It actually ended up being longer than we thought. Mm. And so we were saying, okay, well, if you look at it, you can serve your existing clients in different ways. Mm-hmm. which is always kind of a preference of ours to do. You can serve an, a new market in the same way. So we actually looked at uh, domestic content in the airplane industry, railways, and so on. And right. That was kind of a bit uh, complicated. Or you do something completely different, which you shouldn't really just do from, <laughs> from an existing business. You just start something new if you're going to yeah. do that anyways, right? So that's where we're kind of looking at what are the stretch things? What can we do? What are the questions that people don't have answers to today? And for us, it was really around portfolio management, portfolio administration, because everybody was focused on technical. That's one of my pet peeves in the industry is like, everybody's like, oh, we need to look at the daily output of this plant in 14 second intervals in case there's a voltage spike. And like, guys, how about you manage risks globally? How do you make sure that, and that has kind of, can have phenomenal impact on your bottom line further down the road, a lot more than tweaking a plant a little bit, managing your portfolio, managing compliance, make sure you get paid for power. Right. It sounds stupid, right? When you say, it's like, did I get paid the right amount this month? Right. Little things like billing. <laughs> and that's kind of a fundamental thing that most clients of ours use us for. It's kind of billing. Ah. And it's just getting more complicated. Time of use, seasons, transmission charges, like you name it. Well, you were in Chile with us. Like a project can send a thousand invoices in a month. One project can send a thousand invoices. Yes. How does that work? Basically wheeling charges, so uh, depending on the uh, transmission, and all of those are split between different stakeholders, so it's a credit and so on. It's super complicated. Wow. It it makes no sense. I've seen the matrix. It's like a 100 by 100 almost Excel matrix. Okay, I have to pay this and this and this and this and this and this. this. Who's doing that job well right now in Chile? There's some asset managers, I think, are doing kind of a, a good job over there, and we're working with them to kind of automate the process. That's kind of really kind of the next stage is... You can do it very well on a manual basis, but we're looking to automate the process. So that's awesome. Very, very cool. And I'm assuming that because Chile is following more of a like a, a European slash American model of power system management overall, and they tend to be a model for the rest of Latin America that we expect we're going to see this sort of expand in the coming decade to other countries or no? No, hopefully not. That model work was set up years ago when there was five transmitters and it made sense with five. Now there's 150. What's the ideal look like? Is there a country, I'll say in Latin America, that's getting it right? Rather, if there's not, where should they be looking? Surely not to the US. It's funny. Like I was just reading this morning about Portugal kind of proving a more incentive type of, of solar in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spain is doing the same uh, as well. So Zero incentive, you're, you're mark-to-market, get a commercial PPA, those type of things. And I think that, that works. Yeah. But where should they look? That's a good question. Europe, a lot of things have changed. I think the predictability that, that we see in Germany is good for a lot of people, but administration there is pretty straightforward. Italy, Spain are not models that people look for because of the changes. Uh, UK also changes there. Right. Canada was a lot of feed and tariff programs, which uh-huh. are not going to happen anymore. <laughs> There's probably some jurisdictions in the U.S. that probably make more sense. 
like North Carolina is pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. California, depending on where you are, Massachusetts can be complicated at times. It, it really depends on what you want to achieve and whether it's kind of a, a regime or, or so on and versus transmission connected versus DG. And that, that depends as well, right? Where, where should you look for what? In a lot of ways, though, Canada, frankly, gets a bad rap and people just don't understand how you guys market works. What would you say are, just for the sake of us having a quick laugh here, what do you think are the three things that everybody gets wrong about Canada? Okay. First and foremost, we actually do have summer. It's not minus 10 all year round. We don't travel in snowmobiles or skis in the middle of July. It can get to like the 80s or 90s for the American listeners or 35, 40 degrees Celsius. And that's normal. We have winter, we have summer, we have four seasons. 40 degrees Celsius. Uh, I wouldn't have guessed that. Oh, it's true. It it can get pretty hot. And then it's all about kind of what would drive a lot of Americans say, well, you see a boot all the time. We do not. I I barely know a Canadian that says a boot. Yeah. And there's these kind of, well, finance versus finance, uh, lever, lever. Like there's all these these quirks. Or maybe that's just me because English is not my first language. Maybe I just... Right, you're Quebecois, all right? the time. Yeah. Yeah. There's some niggling of, of the language, right? But pretty much every Canadian says A. Hey, that's true. And pretty much every Canadian has a moose as a pet. Uh, beavers, mostly. Moose are too big. Basically, that, that's that's a point, right? A pet beaver is about this big. You can bring it with you everywhere. Got it. Yeah. Uh, but for, for, moose, for reference, he's, practical. he's showing probably about two and a half feet. And you should look. There's a Molson Canadian ad about the pet beaver. You can Google that. Uh, very funny. Pet. Beaver. I may have to. I may have to put that in on the blog. And of course, from a very early age, learn how to drink a pint. As a Canadian, that's that's kind of a requirement, right? I think you can't actually graduate high school if you can't drink a pint. The pints are not so prevalent. It's mostly bottles, and you get a two-four, so a case of twenty-four beers. It's a two-four. Oh, of course. Why would anyone be, bother with it? Why would anyone bother with a pint? It's so limiting. Exactly. <laughs> Very well. Well, I know that having been through management consulting and starting out your career in Deloitte, which I think is really fantastic way early in your career to gain some pretty powerful tools that can follow you in your career. What would you say are tools that from your consulting days have really helped you now as an entrepreneur and leader in your businesses? So I think there's a lot of structure that comes from the previous life you get to be advisors at a fairly young age to senior people. So how you establish your credibility and all of that comes from, from structure, processes, models, and so on. I can obviously build a mean PowerPoint slide, but that doesn't help me much. But I think that the main thing here is about structure approaches. And uh, I, I've been very lucky. I had bosses who gave me a lot of chance, a lot of leeway. I say, hey, we're, we're hiring smart people. We should trust them. Right, uh, And we try to follow that approach uh, at PowerHub as well. We have a fantastic team. I try to trust them uh, as much as I can. I'm very, very far from a micromanager. And I think that that's a key takeaway as well. We are surrounded by smart people. I try to do the same here at PowerHub. What do you think has been the easiest or perhaps even the hardest thing about starting this new venture? It's your, now your third foray. The easiest, funny enough, it was building the team. Actually, finding good people is hard. But once we have great people, they usually stay. That's kind of a testament to the rest of the team, yeah. uh, to the environment, to what we're accomplishing, and so on. So that, that's been great. Actually, uh, I'm very proud of our team. And actually, our first employee at LCAB is still with us seven years later. And uh, some of our earliest hires that were on the consulting side are now with us today. And one of the hardest things for us was that pivot from consulting to software. Some people transition very well from a change of responsibility, change of role, 
we have a big customer success team that helps our clients with implementation. And that's where our consultants kind of stayed. Uh, but some people didn't make that transition very well. Effectively, LCAB just basically converted into PowerHub. I think the coin is pivoted. Pivoted, right. Pivoted, <laughs> of course. Because I was going to ask about winding down. I mean, we mentioned in the pre-interview a bit about the winding down of the, of the fashion business that you ran. There's a lot to be learned there about how do you see the writing on the wall and what's an effective process for moving in a different direction, allowing those that need to leave and aren't on with the new vision leave. What are your thoughts on pivoting a company, but also winding down a company when you realize that it's time to stop digging? Winding down a company is, it's all about objectives and transparency and so on. And, and I think a lot of management teams hold a lot of information from their teams. So especially if you're in a turnaround situation or you're, you're hitting hard times, be transparent with your team. And I think that that goes a lot. Then it's having a plan about how you wind down. Their legal implications, their financial implications, their HR implications. So I think planning that out and just being very deliberate about it helps a lot. And then the flip side of that is that, that I hold with me today coming from that experience many years ago is that you can be optimistic all you want about your business. You're going to be having growth, success, and so on. You should always be having a parachute of some kind that you always have ready. Not so much for your sake, but for the, for the team and for the business itself, for the investors and so on. You always need to say, well, okay, well, this is where I am today. Things are well. We're moving ahead and so on. That's great. What if it doesn't go well? And it's a hard reflex to coach yourself to do because it's always fun. Like growth is phenomenal. It's great. It's, it's awesome. People are excited and so on. And then you go to the board meeting. It's like, however, we should still think about perhaps who are potential acquirers for this company today. Right. Like, why? Like, well, I have had a bad experience with that and yeah. weren't able to sell the company because we took it too late. So it's always something that I, I try to kind of be mindful of. Fair to say that you're always, as an entrepreneur, thinking through an exit or a transition plan and on the lookout for possible partnerships that could grow into something more. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Did you guys raise money for PowerHub? Yep. Are you willing to talk about how the raise went and how much you raised? So I think right now we're up to probably four and a half million dollars that, okay. that we've raised. That's really exciting for us. So I'm really confident at 2018 because I know what I have in the proverbial bank right? and what's my path forward. So that, that's always good. And it was the same in 2017. So it's always a forward-looking process. It always takes longer than you want. <laughs> it's always harder than you want. And it's never really on the term that you really, really want. Yeah. Because once people come to sign on the dotted line, it's like, oh, and we've noticed that. Yeah. Or we want to do the deal alone, or we want to bring this. So we want, oh, finally, we do want that seat on the board. I know we said we didn't want it, but we do. And, yeah. But ultimately, like as you raise more money, it builds up a full suite of accountability for the management team. And I think that is super important. How would you classify your investor, venture, family office? What'd you go out looking for and why? Well, we have kind of friends and family that kind of got us started a little bit. We have some small VCs that invested as well. A larger investor is a family office mm -hmm. who have usually longer term horizons, yeah. which is very helpful. Have that personal connection as well to you. Yeah. And now we're, we're starting to kind of get also more strategic investors who, who know the market, who can help us go to market, help us with introductions and so on. Where do you see PowerHub in the spectrum of asset management? I remember one of the things that stuck out to me in our conversations is that you don't see yourselves as a renewable energy company per se, right? I mean, you guys have built 
a crack team that understands renewable energy, but you also don't necessarily see yourselves as an asset management company. Can you explain a little bit the, no. the ethos, the philosophy? We're here to help our clients grow. That's the fundamental of it. And we build tools and we support our clients of our team to make the tools relevant to them. So one way to look at, at PowerHub, we're not a commercial asset management suite or a financial asset management suite or a land management suite or a stakeholder engagement or a billing. We're all of these things. So the way to think about PowerHub is really we're kind of an ERP light. And what yeah. we're really focusing on is we're an asset intelligence platform. And that can mean many different things to a lot of people. But fundamentally, it's about centralizing information in one place and making it relevant to diff different parties in your organization. So that can mean all through your life cycle of your project, be it development, uh, construction, operations, commercial management, and so on, you're, all, you're always going to be relevant. We are constantly bringing additional functionality to really follow that whole project life cycle. So to say that we're an asset management platform, that's where we started. Right. You. But since then, our product has grown leaps and bounds. We have clients who just use this on stakeholder engagement. And the conversation I recall very clearly with James Paganis, who's head of your sales and marketing organization. Uh, product, yeah. Or, well, product. Yeah, I mean, he's, well, yeah, that's fair. He's head of basically developing what customers ask for. Yeah. Is that at the core, you guys are a software company and, and you can build as the client's needs evolve. And uh, I thought that was really interesting and insightful. At some point, I want to have James on because he is, he's one of those guys who not only understands from a core development perspective what it looks like to build a solar project, uh, having built many megawatts, but he also really, really understands the notion of the customer experience and like customer survey, like truly trying to get into the customer's head and figure out where they have problems, where they have issues and hurdles. You guys see such a broad spectrum of the market. And I believe you're in more than North America, right? Latin America, Middle East, Europe, Japan. What are you learning about the evolution of our, we'll stick with solar, but the evolution of our industry in terms of where you, obviously you're engaged with clients, they're asking you to develop functionality, which gives you a little bit of insight into their pipeline, not just their assets deployed. What are you guys learning that would be interesting for the Suncast community in terms of where you see the market going regarding DG, utility, et cetera? Well, if we start or with- let's just, let's just say regarding DG and utility, let's bucket that. So, so DG depends how you define it. Mm-hmm. DG in Chile is three to nine megs. That's right. And they're like, how the hell are we managing these small projects? <laughs> and I find that's hilarious. In Ontario, it's a 10 kilowatt system. That's in the right. Middle East, it's a meg system. DG, I think, is a great market because it means so many different things to different people. I'm a big fan of residential, commercial, industrial utility. As yeah, I would agree with that. Let's bucket it with, let's just say that those larger projects that we might colloquially refer to as DG, but really should be C and I, like let's call it 100 kilowatts and above. And there's another segment, but like let's bucket that C and I, 100 kilowatts to like three to five, let's call it five megawatts. And then okay. above five megawatts is a utility project. Okay, fair enough. C and I, lots of rooftop projects getting more and more acceptance behind the meter projects, more and more exciting stuff uh, in the US, uh, virtual net metering with multi offtakers and that whole community solar movement that we're, that we're seeing is, I think is very exciting. Obviously, it creates some administrative challenges, yeah, but very exciting because you're democratizing solar effectively. Yep. So I think that's where CNI projects are really going to grow because there's going to be a business case for the building owners. Hey, I'm going to get cost certainty for 20 years on my power. Hey, it's probably worth it, if I, yeah. especially if I'm the landlord or the owner of the building. If I'm a tenant, yeah. debatable. So I think more and more, we're going to see that Distribution, bringing load, generation closer to load centers, for me, that makes a lot of sense. 
what you're going to see is more diverse portfolios with different agreements and so on. That's creates complexity, which plays into the need for systems. So I believe right. we're well positioned in that in that world. And on the utilities side, I guess it's a more traditional generation model. Yeah, we're going to build a big plant somewhere outside of the city and bring a big transmission line to bring power to market A, B, or C. And I think that still has its place, especially on the installed megawatts. Uh, that's that's where the megawatts are. Yeah, but a number number of plants. And I think we're going to see more and more challenges uh, coming from utility scale where PPAs are going to be shorter. And then it's really about what value they can, they can bring to the grid as well. And for me, that's a big thing from utility scale projects. They're connected directly, transmission connected. That has value in itself. And how you can monetize, for me, that's, that's going to be a big thing that we're going to see in the coming years. Whoever monetizes ancillary services, the better is going to win. That's one of the things I was really curious to understand because I would imagine that based on the nature of your integration with your partners and mostly IPPs, they must be coming to you anticipating their future needs and saying, can you build this for us? Or does it, can we integrate this? So where do you see that opportunity? And as well, with a transition in the way that energy is being bought and sold, generated, transmitted, what threats do you see to your business or to the industry at large? I think the whole industry has been adapting recently to changes less government intervention mm-hmm. or, or well, well, Section 201 is coming closely, so or more, okay. I guess, <laughs> at times. The march forward of renewables is not going to get stopped. We may see a dip, but it's unstoppable. I, I fundamentally believe that it's unstoppable at this, at this point. Yeah. What we see is that companies who are, uh, we, we saw this in Ontario. We had the feed-in tariff program, super structured, kind of a field of dreams, right? Build it, get paid for it. Super straightforward. Yeah. Submit an application, get a project, build it, get paid, rinse, repeat, that type of model. And then that that tanked, and people did one of three things: they complained, government is not supporting our industry anymore. That's terrible. Right. They said, okay, wait a second. Uh, this market I'm in is one of many markets. Right. Let's go elsewhere. Let's figure it out. What skills do we have that's transferable from this market to other markets? Yeah. And some very effective Canadian companies went into the US and Latin America. Yeah. And then the third is like, okay, well, maybe we were serving a market. How can we serve this market differently? This is what we did. It's like, okay, well, we were consultants in this market. What value do we have? What can we bring to the market that has broader reach, has reached locally, and then we can leverage our existing client base, but also globally. And that's where we went kind of a software route. I prefer the, the latter categories, obviously. And that's how we see very, very cool companies all across the US, across the world, who are saying, hey, this, this is going to be my model and I'm going to deliver on it. And I'm a firm believer of small is beautiful. And we see some companies coming into the marketplace with a great team, usually from a bigger IPP to say, okay, well, we're going to grab the top five people from this team, build this startup and go with this vision to implement that. And we're going to raise some funding and we're going to just go at it. And I find that very exciting because the fully integrated, I'm going to produce modules, racking, inverters, I'm going to be a developer, an EPC, an O&M provider, and so on. I think those days are over. We're going to move into a segment I call hot or hype. And <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to ask a specific question about a market okay. or topic, and you just give me 30, 60 second response or reflection on whether or not you think it's hot, hype, or why. We'll start with the Latin America solar market. All right. I, I think it's taught. Seen it in Argentina recently. Prices very low, oversubscribed. Uh, Chile now with the interconnections in the middle of the country. We're going to see a lot more projects. Brazil had his the mark. 
Peru and so on, I think it's going to be a growing market and makes a lot of sense. When people are complaining about irradiance of 2100, when we have 1100 on a good day or 1300 on a good day in Ontario, right. it, it just makes me believe there's such an opportunity, right? Absolutely. <laughs> there's a lot of similarity in seeing how these markets can grow, especially when taking into consideration the way markets like Germany and Canada have boomed. And a lot of it has to do with regulatory elements, regulatory requirements. So we'll see, we'll see how that evolves, especially in Peru, where I think there's a huge opportunity. I agree with you. Hot or hype, energy storage with regard to distributed generation. Makes sense. For me, that just makes sense. It, and then it depends how it's going to be implemented. For me, that, that's a big question. I think it makes sense on a nexus. Like, hey, okay, but what are we doing with it? Mm -hmm. uh, are we peak shaving? Are we load shifting? What are we doing with that storage? And how is it managed? Is it managed centrally or is it everybody for himself? I think we're going to see the rise of virtual IPPs who control 10,000 of these. And I think that's going to be- oh, really of, of controlling the, the storage alone, yeah. right? So an, of a storage IPP that basically is responsible for based dispatching instantaneous load requirements. And, yeah. and wow. Well, it's already started in Germany. I forget the name of the company who's actually doing that today. Very cool. Yeah. And I think that there's some really cool stuff that's going to happen with that, that mix of remote control- and basically ancillary services. And the, the real question ultimately is like, we all know there's benefit there. How do you monetize it? Right. And that's for me that, that I, I've mentioned that for me, that's the biggest question for me in 2018, 2019. And you guys are essentially at a place in the ecosystem where instead of going out to mine gold, you're at the bottom of the mountain selling pickaxes. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one way of looking at it. I like yeah, it. Yeah. Well, moving along here, hot or hype, the nexus of renewables and the electrification of the auto industry. Big point on most, I would say, long-term planning of most ISOs is uh, electricity demand. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you have decreasing demand or stabilizing, a lot of energy efficiency is a big part of most of the ISO's uh, mandates across the world. Uh, electrification of, of transport brings demand up, which is good for renewable. All right. How about hot or hype blockchain? I think there's some great things to do with blockchain, uh, especially into counterparty security. Mm-hmm making sure that contracts are transferable and so on and lowering counterparty risk and those type of things. But right now, all I've seen in, in solar is like forward contracts on power disguised as blockchain. Right. So I think the industry is not there yet. Yeah. I think there's going to be interesting uh, things to do with blockchain. I really do. Yeah. And I have so, some ideas on where that could, that could lead. Seems like the kind of thing that as a register and at the very least, some, it seems like the kind of thing that ultimately integrates into your type of business. Yeah, I believe there's a great opportunity on warranty management as an example. Oh, that's, that's a really great point. Uh, because especially like who installed it, when they installed it, like having the, the right traceability around pieces of equipment, yeah. uh, I, think, and I think is a great use case for blockchain. So there's a smart idea for an, a willing entrepreneur out there. If, if someone wants to talk about it uh, with me on that, uh, I, cool. I'm willing and able. Very cool. Last hot or hype. Local content requirements for the proposed <laughs> for, the, for the for the proposed Canada border wall. I, I think it's very important because it's uh, it's going to be an ice wall because we, we see a, a lot of people coming in from Canada, a lot of U.S. migrants. Yeah, uh, and we really want to respect them, uh, but they need to put in some work. Uh, so we're actually going to have them help build the wall before they can come in, uh, and very I think it's very interesting. Yeah, and of course, instead of solar power, it's going to be geothermal powered. Oh, it has to. It, it has to. It's really kind of a Game of Thrones kind of wall uh, that, that we're, we're aiming for. Uh, fortunately, we haven't seen any dragons, so we're good. I heard that they're going to require that you install an, an AR app that similarly Game of Thrones themed for passport approval 
to get across the border. It's no longer like you can just get across with your license. No, I, I think I think that that's uh, definitely going to happen. Interesting. I'd love to know what position you hold, maybe about the industry, or maybe just personally, that you feel is particularly controversial. How can I say? We, we see it all the time where organizations are so focused on building new projects mm-hmm. and they're treating operations and maintenance and asset management as a cost center. And that drives me bonkers. More and more companies are taking this more seriously and so on. But for me, that, that's one thing that people want to just forget about these assets and have them manage themselves a little bit. That, that's kind of what we saw early in the marketplace and say, hey, if it's not broken, don't fix it mm. type of approach. That drives me bonkers. Uh, because there's, I believe that probably seven out of 10 contracts or plants were in technical default at one point or another because people don't pay attention. I was on a call with a potential client yesterday. He's like, yeah, we haven't rene- renewed our land lease for that site, but they're still letting us operate. So we're not going to ask the question. And I'm like, Untapped. what? You're kidding me. And it's those type of things that people are like, eh, we'll, we'll wing it. We see a real profit professionalization, I guess, of the industry right now. And there's some groups that are bang on and they know what they're doing and so on. And there's some real cowboys out there who are trying to sell projects and people are looking at them like, hey, well, prove that you've done maintenance of the last three years. That's actually something we talked about in Chile, right? That it's unbelievable the number of times I've had a conversation with folks asking about their O&M cost center, right? Like how they approach O&M and they genuinely don't know what their O&M is costing on a plant by plant basis because they see it as an upfront negotiation in their build cost. And they don't even review the reports if they're lucky enough to have negotiated that they get a report from the person that's going to go wash their plant, right? Like the, it, it blows me away. They're like, oh, well, it's already in the contract. It's going to get washed twice a year. I'm like, and, and my, my question is often, well, how's that washing going for you? Does it help? Or what, what, what data are you looking at? It's, it blows my mind the number. Uh, and these are sophisticated companies who uh, have the financial capability to be and, and the, frankly, the number of heads sitting around to be able to dig into this data, and they don't. I think that's a huge opportunity in the industry. And people don't, it's not sexy. Well, let's move on to a segment I call Lessons Learned. I am always trying to learn from the guests on this show. What are some key lessons or takeaways from some of the most important mentors in your career? One thing that stuck with me on like high-level career planning which I think is, was really interesting for me. And I was kind of a, what, 23-year-old in his first job when I learned this and I thought it was helpful. And my boss at the time told me, from 20 to 30, you learn. Yeah. From 30 to 40, you build. And from 40 plus, you either grow or you cash out. Or There's a variety of nomenclature that can go on the 40 plus. But for me, I, I'm still under 40, so I'll focus on that. <laughs> but it's really kind of just a high-level mindset. You're not going to win the, the proverbial career lottery between your, in, in your 30s. You may. You may build, as an entrepreneur, you may, you may build something great and so on. So you learn, you build, and then you grow. And that can be, for me, the growth on the 40 plus, it can be personal growth, it can be financial growth, it can be company growth, it can be a variety of things. But for me, that's where I've changed it. It's like learn, build, grow by decades. For me, that's always helps me put things in perspective. I love that. I love that perspective as well, because I run into so many people who want they want grow now and they're not willing to put in the decade of experience. And I've never, for what it's <laughs> worth, I've, I've rarely met an, a successful executive who would say it, that it takes less than a decade, right? Almost all of them agree that it's roughly like eight to 10 years to become seasoned in something good enough that others would be willing to allow, like sort of allow growth, that, that investors are going to believe in your capacity for scale. 
And folks will point to some of the tech entrepreneurs, some of them whom are lucky, but you, a lot of folks forget to say, oh, well, when did he start coding, right? <laughs> like these guys are, yeah. good. I completely agree. Like Malcolm Gladwell, the whole 10,000 hours of iterations or practice of anything to be good mm-hmm. at it. For me, that's concept that I've uh, really taken with me. Yeah. Uh, w- which reinforces the whole concepts of persistence, stamina, grit. That wins for me. Yeah. Consistency. Yeah. Showing up. We've talked a bit about some of your failures, but what failure most affected or influenced your career? I think that business that went bust, I was kind of trusted to kind of, I was parachuted in as CEO because I had a good relationship with the fund that owned the company and it needed somebody they could trust. Yeah. My CFO at the time uh, reminds me often that it used to be the the reverse Peter's principle. You know, Peter's principle, you're you're promoted to your highest level of incompetence. Ah, yeah. And he said, for you, we believe that you had the capabilities to do this, but we dropped you in knowing you didn't know anything. Uh, you just had kind of the diamond in the rough or kind of the raw capabilities to kind of yeah. bring it forward. But have failed. Obviously, there's exceeding circumstances like right. high-end fashion and a big recession and so on and so forth. But for me, that was a failure because I didn't plan for the worst in certain aspects. And I, I've learned a lot. Is there something there that you say, I'll, I'll not do that again? Is there like, what's, what's one of those nuggets that you feel? I think we're mentioning this at the beginning of the interview is... You can be optimistic all you want. You can have strong growth, strong balance sheet, strong PL, and so on. You should always look at the, the other side of the coin and say, okay, w- what if things go sideways? And, and that's something that's been drilled in me because of that experience, because we were a bit late to the ball and trying to sell the company right. in that case. And that may obviously other things happen as yeah. well. But that's for me, that's something in the background. And I was just in a board meeting this week where I said, okay, well, great 2017. Here's the plan for 2018. Things are going well. However, we should still engage in conversations with A, B, C, and D. Etienne, what has you most excited right now for solar growth in the global market? I mean, what do you see that's next? Uh, uh, I'm excited. Just base numbers grow like crazy mm-hmm. everywhere. RFPs, call for tenders, behind the meter approaches, commercial PPAs. There's all types of levers of growth all across the planet that, that we're seeing. That for me, that's exciting. The growth train is running yeah. and you can't really stop it. That's really exciting. And the flip side that I find even more exciting is that people are, I, I have just kind of ranted about people just focusing on building projects and those type of things. Oh, we're seeing real people saying, wait a second, let's take a step back. For me, once again, I was on a, uh, on a discussion with a potential client yesterday. He says, for us, asset management should be th- about thinking two years ahead. Right. And right now we're fighting fires. So what can we put in place today to help us think forward? And that's really the whole discussion that's coming about asset intelligence mm-hmm. rather than asset management or operations management and so on. It's like, what can we learn and look forward to to make our business more efficient? And we see people thinking that way more and more. And that for me, that, that, that's phenomenal. That, that, that gets me excited. We're rounding third base here. So I'm going to move into a segment I call learning, leadership, and legacy. Okay. So as we hit the home stretch, I'd love to hear more about how you educate yourself. And I know that leaders are readers and I've never met a CEO who doesn't read. I'd love to hear from you what you would give yourself as a recent college graduate. You're fresh out of school. You're what, going into Deloitte. You would go back and tell your recently college graduated self, hey, you should have this manual. I thought that that question was really interesting in a variety of ways. Because when you go into these organizations, they say, well, you should read this book by Christensen and uh, From Good to Great and like these more classic novels about business growth. 
but you have no point of reference, mm-hmm. which, I think it, which I think is interesting. Uh, I'm actually just reading up Scale Up right now, which is a great right, book. Vern Harnish, Scaling Up, uh, yeah. The Rockefeller Habits. Uh, and I think that's really interesting. Uh, it's been widely recommended to me. I have friends who are actually consultants on that methodology and so on. I think that's more, a lot more practical and a lot more relatable than a lot of business, yeah. pure business strategy books. On the business strategy book side, probably Blue Ocean Strategy, mm. about looking at markets a different way. And I think that's very important to kind of get in your head from an early age. And for, for me, the, the thing I, I mentioned, Malcolm Gladwell earlier, 10,000 hours of practice, of iterations, or I, I forget which book that's in, actually. But for me, that's something that I've learned fairly early, I guess but still super important. And I would just like to hammer it because you come out of school, you believe the world is your oyster. Hey, I'm getting a paycheck. Oh my God, that's awesome. Or I'm in this venture and it's growing and, but, and you're expecting success to come like this. And that's just not, unfortunately, how the world works. Yeah, that's in his uh, outliers book. I definitely agree there. I've been a bit Malcolm fan. And obviously, I think there are some folks that are trying to say, and I think Malcolm has actually come out and said that, look, it's not an exact science, 10,000 hours, but I think the underlying philosophy there is important, that it takes time to develop a skill set that others are willing to pay for. (laughs) Etienne, thanks for this amazing insight. As we wrap up here, where can people find you? What's the best way for them to engage? LinkedIn's always a good point. Twitter, at the ATN, which is kind of funny because my name is Etienne, Uh E-T-I-E-N-N-E, which most people can't say. So easy English way to say it's A-T-N, three letters. So Uh the underscore A-T-N on Twitter. Great way to find me. Got it. You can find me on our website, powerhub.com. And if there were a way that the Suncast audience could help, is there something we can do for you? Is there something that you guys are... For me, I believe fundamentally that technology is an enabler. Uh, so if you have ideas of how technology can enable your business, I'm always willing and able and available to have these discussions. Uh, we talked uh, in passing of blockchain for warranty management. I'm really interested in that. I'm actually doing reading up on that because I think there's really an opportunity there. Just having a discussion, you're running assets, you have assets, uh, you want to chat, try to be more efficient, effective, and focused. Uh, we're, we're all about asset intelligence and variety of forms. Uh, so I'd just like to engage. I do not have the monopoly on good ideas or answers, but uh, I'd like to uh, discuss it with you guys. Very cool. Well, let's end today, as we always do, with a bold prediction. Etienne, what one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? I look very closely at inefficiency in marketplaces. And people more and more are looking to say, well, I'm going to remove this inefficiency in the, in the process and make things more efficient and win because of that. So I think that goes into our whole asset intelligence kind of approach. But I think that's what we're, what, what we're focused on as a company. Uh, and I think we see more and more actors at variety of, with different approaches are doing that. Yeah. Uh, like automated uh, plan design, a uh, great mm. company doing that. From that, we're ultimately going to see, and I'm surprised we haven't seen this, this yet, uh, more uh, advanced analytics in the forms of kind of machine learning on yeah. performance data. For me, I'm, I'm still scratching my head why there's, what, 70 different monitoring companies on the planet? Why no one's as the... Well, obviously, quality of data is a big one. So why it hasn't really kind of came out. But why not, guys? Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited about that personally. But just the, the quality of data, I think it's a big stumbling block there. Very cool. Very cool. I agree as well. I'm baffled why there's not more machine learning uh, and we'll call it pseudo AI being injected into the data science of our business. And I foresee that as a huge opportunity moving forward. 
Well, Etienne, if that or, or any other of the prognostications on this show happen, we'll be sure to have you back here and talk about it, including, hey, one of my Suncast listeners who might build the blockchain for solar warranties. I look forward to that and many more conversations with you. I love it. I've had so much fun. Give my regards to James, and I'd love to have you back anytime. Well, do, Nico. Thank you so much for the opportunity, and hi to the whole Suncast audience. Thanks a lot. Hey, before you go, one more. Don't forget that on Tuesday, we'll have Mark McClanahan from MaxGen. It's going to be another great episode here on Suncast. That's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors, and you're now well-armed for battle. Hopefully, you'll take away some great tools for your own success. I'd love it if you'd share what you learned or share the episode over on LinkedIn. Let me know what other tools you need. If you want to sharpen the axe a little bit more, I've shared some of the resources we discussed in today's conversation over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the latest episode link in the title bar. Perhaps the best tool in your arsenal might be subscribing to the mailing list while you're there so that you'll get an email from yours truly when new content is available. Have a suggestion for someone you think should join the conversation? Email me, nico at mysuncast.com or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Hey, that's it. Thanks for being here. Until next time, stay informed, my friend, and stay tuned.